when I was about six, I started making flip books. So it got to the point where no memo pad in the house was safe. (laughs) (laughs) This is animator, director, and voice actor Eric Goldberg. And I kind of taught myself crudely how to animate with flip books until I was 13 and they got me a Super 8 camera for my bar mitzvah present and I started making my own animation films. And then what about voice acting? How did that begin for you? Well, okay, (laughs) again, when I was a kid, you know, you used to be able to buy commercial cut-down versions of classic cartoons. So I would get a Donald Duck cartoon or, or a Woody Woodpecker cartoon and run it on my eight millimeter projector. And of course it didn't have any sound. So I had to provide it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> to the amazement of friends and family, I'm sure. More <laughs> to the kind of, oh God, he's getting weird again. Anyway. <laughs> Goldberg is probably best known for his work with Walt Disney Animation Studios, though he's worked with Warner Brothers Animation as well. His start with Disney began with the 1992 animated film Aladdin. It was written and directed by John Musker and Ron Clements, who turned to Goldberg to join the film as an animator. Just an animator, not a voice actor. John and Ron gave me the script, and they said, go away and read it and and see if there's a character that you know, you're interested in. Animators are often assigned specific characters. And, of course, one thing that they were great at was writing their dialogue so it sounded like the actor they wanted to cast. So it was very, very clear that they wanted Robin Williams to be the genie. So I'm reading this stuff. And at the time, it was archetypal stuff. You know, he's an evangelist. He's a game show host. You know, all that kind of stuff. He's an army sergeant. And, you know, I'm reading this stuff and I'm thinking, I hope I get the genie. I hope I get the genie. I hope I get the genie. I go in and see them and they say, oh, well, we're thinking of giving you the genie. And I went, hmm, okay, fine. That sounds good. And I was so excited. I locked myself out of my rental car and they had to call security to break me back in. (laughs) That's my auspicious start at Walt Disney Animation Studios. (laughs) (laughs) And what had happened was often in animation, it's the directors and the producer who really decide the kind of top level casting, you know, who they would like for the roles. Um, And it certainly was the case here with John and Ron wanting Robin Williams, but he hadn't signed on the dotted line yet. So my first week at Disney's, they said, take some of Robin's comedy tracks off of an album and animate a genie to them. So I did. I did three genie tests. And here comes Jeffrey Katzenberg with Robin Williams on his arm. And he's coming in to look at my tests. Mm. (laughs) And I have to say, you know, aside from pinching myself and going, okay, I'm in Hollywood now, it was a great great thing to be able to make Robin Williams laugh. He laughed at this animation and he absolutely saw the potential for it. And, you know, one of the major things I did was I took a bit where he goes, 
Tonight I'd like to talk to you about the very serious subject of schizophrenia. No, it doesn't! Shut up, let him talk. And, and for that, I had the genie grow an extra head to argue with himself. <laughs> and that, that kind of floored him. And <laughs> he just thought, I can see what this is going to turn into. And Robin really was a huge, huge animation fan. Absolutely. And so uh, this was kind of like candy for him. But that's really how we got Robin, you know, to be the genie. Welcome to the Academy Museum podcast, Close Up on Casting. I'm Jacqueline Stewart. In this episode, Casting and Animation. Robin Williams' casting as the genie in Aladdin is often talked about as a turning point when the focus on casting big-name actors for animated films began. But is that true? And what's the role of a casting director in animated films? How is it different from live action? That's after the break. The first recording session we had with him, I made a big mistake. Again, this is Eric Goldberg, the animator behind the genie from Aladdin. John and Ron go, oh, do you want to go out there on the stage and take a look at his mannerisms while he's putting stuff down? And, and you can incorporate that into the animation. And I said, sure. Big mistake. Because for about two hours, I'm creased up trying not to laugh. <laughs> Otherwise, I'll kill the recording. I'm like five inches from the guy. <laughs> Finally, he takes a break, and I'm like, I'll go behind the glass now. <laughs> well, there's certainly something so intense and so unique about Robin Williams' style. And, you know, what what do you think it was that captivated people so much about the way that he played Genie? Well, you know, the thing with Robin is, first of all, his lightning timing. Okay. And he can switch, you know, from one thing to another in a nanosecond. And animation has that ability as well. We can change attitudes or poses in a character in three or four frames, you know, and, and control it to the frame. So animation was kind of the perfect medium for Robin. And of course, Robin once we got him in front of the uh, the mic, he outcame all the celebrity impressions. And and we didn't expect it, but after the first session and they peeled us off the floor, we're like, we have to use this stuff. We have to use this stuff. And so we started incorporating it into the film. Genie of the Lamp! Right here, direct from the lamp, right here for your very much wish fulfillment. And Thank Robin you. spoiled us for choice that way. He just gave us so much material to work with. He was a very generous performer. And by that, I mean, he wasn't just doing it to make the crew crack up. He was always pushing 150% into the mic to get as much gold as possible that he could for the role of this character. Uh, and more often than not, he really could channel it through the character. And that was pretty amazing. You know, another thing that people talk about a lot with the casting of Robin Williams is that 
the idea that before that point, it wasn't really well-known actors playing animated roles and that this opened that up. And did you see the film as a turning point in that way? You know, many people have, but actually, you know, being an animation geek, I know of many other cases where they did cast famous people. You know, a few examples. Cliff Edwards, the voice of Jiminy Cricket, was already a well-known recording star known as Ukulele Ike. What is your name? Uh, Oh, uh, Cricket's the name. Jiminy Cricket. And everybody knew Ukulele Ike back in 1940. You must have a cup of tea. Ah, yes, indeed, the tea. You must have a cup of tea. In the 1950s, they cast Ed Wynn and Jerry Colonna as the Mad Hatter and the March Hare, respectively. And they were both vaudeville and radio comedians very, very well known. Uh, won't you tell us all about it? Start at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And when you come to the end, <laughs> stop. So it's not like it never happened in Disney's past before. Let's put it that way. It certainly has had its history But I think in this particular case, because the humor was so linked to Robin's rhythms and Robin's style of delivery, I think that made it a turning point for an awful lot of people. And Goldberg says the film did mark somewhat of a departure in the style of humor it showcased. Disney humor was... Not exactly gut buster humor, <laughs> okay? <laughs> it could be a little bit tame, although occasionally, you know, they would they would get something more. And truth be told, Disney films went more for the characterization than, than the gut busting laugh, let's put it that way. Hopefully with a character like the genie, we got both. And with this humor, there had never been that kind of humor in a Disney film before. So we all kind of felt a little subversive, (laughs) you know, sticking this stuff in a Disney movie and just wondering if we're going to be allowed to keep it in. I mean, one of the things that was great about Robin is he kind of, he knew I knew. In other words, he would do something and I'd be able to pick up on it visually. And the most famous example of it in one of Robin's riffs was he doesn't believe Aladdin is going to use his third wish to set him free. And he goes, uh-huh, yeah, right. Now, John and Ron didn't know what boo-whoop was. I said, well, that's Robin's shorthand for telling a lie. It's Pinocchio's nose growing. Can I please turn the genie's head into Pinocchio? We own the character. I'll do it. I'll set you free. Uh-huh, yeah, right. right. No, really, I promise. <laughs> And so it's in the movie. (laughs) And, you know, there were hundreds of cases like that where we would just throw something in because Robin threw it in and and we were allowed that kind of license. The, The character allowed us that kind of animation license. Goldberg's first time as a director on an animated feature for Disney was with Pocahontas in 1995, which he directed with Mike Gabriel. And it was on that film that the important role that casting directors play came into focus for him. We wanted Native American actors to play the Native American parts. And so the casting directors were instrumental in that. The casting for Pocahontas was done by Brian Siobhan, Ruth Lambert, and Karen Margiata. 
Now, often for these musical films, the musicians we use, like Alan Menken, for example, or Stephen Schwartz, they're very, very good at knowing Broadway talent who can sing and act. And, you know, often they'll suggest people who come to the, you know, come to the fore. In this particular case for Pocahontas, uh, they recorded the demo of Colors of the Wind with a wonderful singer-actress named Judy Kuhn, who is still working on Broadway. And that just blew us away. And as we started looking for Native American voices, well, we couldn't find actors who could also sing all the time. So often we will cut the two together. And in this case, what happened was we cast Irene Bedard, and that came from the casting directors amongst the many Native American voices that they found. And we did the grand experiment of here's Irene's dialogue and here's Judy Kuhn's singing. Put them two together and it worked. He wants me to be steady. And so that's what happened there is we had Irene Bedard as the speaking voice and Judy Kuhn as the singing voice. And you, you really can't tell the difference. What I love most about rivers is you can't step in the same river twice. So the casting directors also are very good at finding other actors who aren't necessarily your star A-listers, if you know what I mean. There's a lot of characters who don't need to be that, first of all. But second of all, part of the idea here for animation casting is you always want the characters to be their own characters. You don't just want them to be a paper-thin carbon copy of who the voice actor is, for example. They always have to be their own unique character in animation. And so often casting actors who are less known is very helpful in that. You know, and back in, in what they called animation's golden age, so many animation actors came from radio because they were used to using their voices. And I'm talking about people like June Foray and B. Benaderet and Mel Blanc and Paul Fries and folks like that who came from radio and they had the chops to regulate their voices for thousands of different types of characters. They were always busy and nobody knew what they looked like. In fact, Mel Blanc had a 1946 radio sitcom where the refrain for his theme song was, uh, I have a face that's made for radio. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, the fact that you don't necessarily know what these actors look like is also helpful in making that animation character unique. You know, you aren't necessarily referencing the persona of a previously known actor. Coming up, casting director Mary Hidalgo. Her credits include Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, The Lego Movie, and Finding Nemo. I wonder if you could start to break down when you know someone is right for a role. It's super intuitive. This is casting director Mary Hidalgo. Sometimes when somebody just walks into a room, they have a presence and you can feel it and you just know that they're going to be, they're the role. 
even if the audition sometimes can go like a little haywire, you really sense who they are and you like it, it's it's a weird feeling, you know, and and it, I don't know why that happens, but it does. You know, and I think maybe that's you know why people are good at casting because they have that same thing. They must, you know, um you you feel the talent you you know you know how funny they are how they can be or you know in animation the uniqueness of their voice sometimes even is that's all you want it's hard cuz we have to be ahead of the curve when we do casting in animation or we used to back in the disney days in the early days of pixar you have to kind of feel who's going to be somebody big in the future in a weird way because because animated at, at the time when we were working like on monsters and all those things they take years they took years years and so you can't put somebody in there that's kind of a isn't nobody because they always want the kind of the name yeah or you want to put somebody that you know is going to be somebody but selling that to people your you know your directors or your producers who aren't hyper aware of that world that's part of our job is to try to sell them and it doesn't always go well like for monsters incorporated i auditioned um, will farrell and he was so great he was so great but they didn't know who he was they knew like oh that guy on saturday night live but you know so it's like that's part of the whole job is trying to you know sell them on this thing that they don't know about you know and then they do always go kind of for the like the bigger star that's why it you know it was john goodman who's like the most perfect voice in animation um dad voice <laughs> working man he's everything you know and he it's hard to beat him you know still still he's still this thing you know and billy crystal and it's just like it was easy that was easy you know Ooh. Hey, can I borrow your odorant? Yeah, I got uh, smelly garbage or old dumpster. You get the uh, low tide? No. How about wet dog? Yep, stick it up. So what are some of the other ways that casting for animation is different from live action? Animation is always the actor's voice first. Like, I have to think about an actor that's going to plus something, that's going to make the animators drawing the scenes and doing the storyboards it's going to make them get excited so it's a voice that like sings without seeing the the actor you know and that's they love it so much when you do that for them you know and that's what we always tr- strive for is to find an interesting voice with a great personality and a great performance I wonder if you could talk from your perspective how animation kind of grew in, you know, a kind of esteem among actors, right? Like, it seems like a really important kind of project that contemporary actors want to have as a part of their experience, mm-hmm. where it wasn't always the case mm-hmm. that major stars were seeking to do mm-hmm. voice for animation. Like, when did that that shift happen, do you think? Um, I think a lot of people think it happened when Robin Williams did uh, Aladdin. Even though I think in the tradition of all Walt Disney Studios and all those animated movies that they did prior to Aladdin, there were a lot of movie stars and celebrities in those movies. But I think that, like, triggered something. But he has the perfect animation. Like, that that kind of set the bar, that his comedy and his presence, he really totally plussed that character and that role. And I think from that moment, there was a lot of, high demand for that kind of actor. Somebody that will get to come in and read your words, but also really plus it, 
you know, that's where we go a lot of times for comedians. That's what you think about when you think of Eddie Murphy's work, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And then when Pixar started doing these really great stories and really wonderful, like, characters, I think a lot of people were like, I want to do that. And then when you really go outside of the box in terms of the range of people that you bring in because you're really trying to be open, as you said, like, really kind of, you know, inclusive in the mm -hmm. process— what are some of the ways that you make arguments for people, especially when you might want to advocate for somebody that is not at all what you know the director has in mind mm -hmm. or what the, the studio has in mind? A lot of times it's just me watching a movie and pulling audio out of an actor from that movie and then putting that, that audio behind the image of the character that we're kind of going for. That really sometimes really sells it to people. Again, it's just uh, me trying to sell something to, uh, uh, you know, whoever is in the room. Um, a lot of times, too, because we go for these such high A-level actors, those people won't audition for us. And so to determine if they're right, I, you have to have this complete, really crazy knowledge of movies and scenes in movies where you can pull, like, a clip of somebody— and then you take that clip, you put it against picture, everybody listens to it. Because they don't want to look at the actor. You don't want to look at the image of the actor because that really throws you off. And then when we determine, like, if it's two people we want that are going to be talking together, we pull another clip. And then we make a little movie or a little scene. It doesn't make any sense <laughs> at all because they're from two different, you know, things. But we try to make the flow of it sound like a conversation. Oh, it was it's so fun to do. It's incredible. Yeah. It's like fun you're basically to do. like constructing a chemistry read. Yeah, yeah. It's really fun to do that because it's, you know, I because I love I love movies so much and I love being able to find the perfect clip of somebody that sells it. That's really enjoyable for me. While she got her start with Walt Disney Animation, Mary Hidalgo has also worked with other studios and collaborated several times with the award-winning filmmaking duo, Phil Lord and Christopher Miller. Their films include Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, The Lego Movie, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Okay, let's talk about Lord and Miller. <laughs> um, so when did you first work together? Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs was our first movie together. I was working at Sony. I had known them through mutual friends, and... I was at a party. Phil Lord came up to me and he goes, you work over there. We're thinking of coming over there and directing a movie. And they go, should we come? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so uh, the whole party, it was just Phil and I talking. And then at the end of the party, I remember saying, there's a cop in the movie. Will you please think about Mr. T? Because as a child, not even a child, probably like as a teenager, the A-team, Mr. T, he was everything. And so I told I told them that. They took the job. They wrote a script. They wrote Earl for Mr. T. Mr. T came in, who was the, the sweetest, most wonderful. Ugh, it was like a dream to me. You know what you are, Flintlock Wood? No. A shenaniganizer. A Tom Fool. You see my beautiful angel son, Cal? Sir. I love him so much. This is my only son. I want him to have a bright future. A future in which you don't ruin our town's day with one of your crazy science dooley papa thingies. Well, so he came in, and that was our first collaboration. And it was the—that, to me, is, is, is the most—that was the most special thing I've ever worked on. The most delightful 
it came out exactly how I figured it would come out or pictured it would come out, hoped it would come out. It was brilliant. To me, it's brilliant, that movie. And it's just due to those two guys. Okay. I was going to ask, like, what accounts for that? What made well, that so they, special? They're very collaborative. And they, they, they make you feel like the reason why you're doing your job is because you're good at your job. And so they listen to what you have to say. And that wasn't just for me. That was everybody on the crew. They made you feel so great about your choices, about what you were doing. And it just, like, you, it's, it's, it's rare to get that anywhere. And they just, and, and it continues. They're continually like that. You know, I, you know, with their, their crews and with their, everybody. It's just, you know, they're actors. You know, they're just really amazing guys, really. We had them on the podcast. Oh, was very cool last yeah. season. So I want to talk about Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Uh-huh. Uh, this is a film that when we talk to other casting directors, they've really reflected on how it has diversity sort of baked into it, mm-hmm. like its conceptualization. And I wonder if you could just talk about, you know, your approach to that film. Um, well, I know they wanted, they wanted to be very authentic with Miles Morales. You know, they wanted us to find the actor that was Miles Morales, which is difficult considering when we were casting, we were not allowed to say anything. We weren't allowed to say it was a Spider-Man movie. We weren't allowed to say Miles Morales. We weren't allowed to say anything. Wow. So it's just us <laughs> in New York, <laughs> everywhere, just getting auditions, you know, and it, it was hard. It was really, really challenging. So the challenge there was to get people to come in to be interested? Yeah, or? I mean, it was. it's a little easier when you're looking for a youth because everybody will come in. But at the same time, there was no... It wasn't like it was an important thing. It was just like this thing that these people were casting. You know, if we had said Spider-Man, people would have been, you know, climbing up the walls to get to us. But, you know, and that's fine. I don't mind that. But, you know, it just, it, it, was, it was challenging, you know. And, uh, you know, Dope had come out, and that's where um, Shamik was in. And I just remember loving him so much in that movie. And I thought, he still has like a real charming teenager quality to his voice, even though he's in his 20s. Why am I so sweaty? Why are you so sweaty? It's a puberty thing. <laughs> I don't know why I said that. I'm not going through puberty. I did, but I'm done. I'm a man. It was a tough sell. He was a tough sell because, you know, Phil loves somebody that can deliver a joke. And I don't know how funny Shamik is. He is funny, but he's also very charming. But he has to be the center of the movie. He can't be just, because that character's not a comedian. So I think it all ended up working out really, really well. And then when you're casting something like that, then how do you think about the combination of voices to include? Is it that you kind of start with the central character and then think about how you will complement that? Or what's yeah, your approach? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit. But it's, oh, it is, you know, everybody has their wish lists of, like, who they want. You know, like, you know, we always wanted Brian Tyree Henry because Atlanta had just come out and we we're just like, that guy... You know, and then Mahershala. And just like you just, you know, you just go down that road and you just hope that, you know, you listen to the voice over and over and you just go, that works for us. Let's hope that that's the same thing we get in the room. And we did, you know, we had to beat it out of Mahershala. Not really. (laughs) Tomorrow, find that girl. You walk up to her and be like, hey. (laughs) 
You serious, Uncle Aaron? I'm telling you, man, it's science. So walk up to her and be like, hey. No, 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 no. Like, hey. But then you have all the smaller roles, you know, and that's a, like an auditioning process. Were there um, sort of any guiding principles that you had going into Spider-Verse in terms of inclusion, in terms of, you know, ways that you wanted to really expand the range of the types of voices uh -huh. that people hear in animation? Um, I know, you know, Phil is always very inclusive in his writing. So when it's in the writing, you just, you know, you try, you strive to to suit, you know, find the right actor with the right background and the right vocal quality. You know, if they're from, you know, New York, you want to try to strive to get like a little bit of an accent because it just helps a little bit to have that, you know. But, you know, it's just, you know, he's, he's just really good, you know, at being inclusive. And the Miles Morales story is just, it's all about being inclusive. It, it, it's something that place, takes place in like a New York City type place, Brooklyn, there's you have to be inclusive. That city is so inclusive. You can't not have diversity, you know. So it's way different from like back, you know, in the early Disney days when it was nobody even thought about it. You know, nobody even no the people didn't write things. There was always only ever one woman. Right. Only ever one woman. And <laughs> right. she had to be everything. You know, it's just like, it's such a nicer time now, just like for actors, I think, you know, it's so much more inclusive. But we're still in early days of it, too. You know, Phil, because he's of Latin descent, as am I, we, it's nice to have a lot of, you know, Latin talent. And, you know, it's not that big of a pool yet, still. You know, we're still, you know, we're just early days of that. You know, it'll get bigger and bigger, just like, you know, LGBTQ, you know, there's all those actors now, too. Like when back, you know, t even 10 years ago, it was such a tiny pool, you know. But now that we're saying, like, bring it on, everybody's included, you know, those pools are only getting bigger and bigger, which I love. So what does the concept of authentic casting mean to you? Because there's a lot of conversation about, as you were just saying, having characters that reflect a range, and then that can also mean opportunities for actors of color, for queer actors. Mm -hmm. But of course, you know, there's a long history of people playing different types of roles, and some actors would even argue, right? Like, I would like to play and stretch and do different types of things. But I wonder how you think about the question of authenticity mm -hmm. in casting, or how that comes up in your work. It comes up more frequently now, and I think there's no reason why we shouldn't be casting authentic people using their authentic voices in authentic characters in animation. We just hired somebody for um, a project that I'm casting. One of the characters, she was blind. And it's not necessary because it's voiceover to hire a blind actress, but we thought, why not? And that pool's not big. So we found this really great actress. We've worked with her. She's great. She was already a great actor. We just, you know, it's just a different process. We throw her in the booth. We work with her. You know, I haven't seen it animated yet. But, you know, like, I think that's okay. I think that's what we need, we need to do. We don't, there's no reason not to. There's absolutely no reason to not to. That's so interesting. So for you, is it about giving someone the opportunity because the character kind of motivated that? Or, you yep. know, is it also that, a blind person would bring a perspective to the character. Something that, as a writer, you can't imagine. I mean, I can't imagine your experience in the world 
because I, I, that's not my experience, you know. And it, it's nice to have that actor have the voice, you know, that's necessary to plus it. It pluses it in a different way. Do you ever find yourself kind of advocating in that regard? or? Yeah, it's usually about adding more female characters to things. Because a lot of times, sometimes it's not even thought of in the writing or, you know, in the early discussions. I just, I'm working on a movie now and we just, there's these wizards. And there's no reason why the wizards have to be all dudes. So we're just like, what about some ladies there? And they're like, oh, that's a good idea. You know what I mean? Just to, and it's just a conversation and it's easy enough. And pe- the people aren't like, like bumping up against it and saying, no way, let's not add more women. But I'm, it is always, I love to advocate. Tarzan, perfect example. There was an ape, like his best friend. They didn't know what they wanted. How about Rosie O'Donnell? And I was like, oh, that makes sense. So it's just like, it's always, you know, I'm always advocating for for putting more women in there and getting more jobs for, you know, female actresses and voiceover actresses. And it just, you know, it just takes time. That was casting director Mary Hidalgo. My thanks to her and to animator and director Eric Goldberg, who we heard from earlier. And my thanks to you for listening to this episode of the Academy Museum podcast, Close Up on Casting. If you haven't already, please subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. Next time on the Academy Museum podcast, the casting of Batman. Especially when you're trying to redefine a character, it can be difficult because people will have a well-rooted opinion. That's it for this episode of the Academy Museum podcast, Close Up on Casting. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. I'm your host, Jacqueline Stewart. I'm also director and president of the Academy Museum in Los Angeles. I invite you to visit the museum to learn more about the arts, sciences, and artists of movie making. The Academy Museum podcast is written and hosted by me, Jacqueline Stewart. The show is a production of Elias Studios in collaboration with the Academy Museum. Shayna Naomi Crockmall is the vice president of podcasts, and Antonia Sarahito is the executive producer for Elias Studios. Catherine Mailhouse is the Elias director of content development. This episode was produced and edited by Monica Bushman. Our other producer is Victoria Alejandro. Antonia Sarahito is our senior producer and story editor. Mixing by E. Scott Kelly. Our theme song is by Nicholas Bertel. Our podcast website, elias.com slash podcasts, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital and marketing teams at Elias Studios. Our gratitude to assistant curator Nicholas Barlow and associate curator Dara Jaffe, curators of the museum's performance gallery. And to one of our inaugural assistant curators, Anna Santiago, who co-conceived the performance gallery and has since moved on from the museum. Additional thanks to the team at the Academy Museum, including Lindsay Deming, Adriana Fernandez, Molly Robbins, Kimberly Stevens, and Stephanie Sykes. 
Our podcast graphics were designed by Jacob Beaver Mui and McKenna Ward. Thanks to the team at Elias Studios, including Jens Campbell, Taylor Kaufman, Sabir Brara, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, Andy Orozco, Michael Constantino, and Leo G. The Academy Museum Podcast is a production of Elias Studios. Academy Museum digital engagement platforms, including this podcast, are sponsored by Bloomberg Philanthropies. This podcast is supported by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.